Father, we thank you that we can call upon you as our Heavenly Father. We know that you care for us, that you love us and take care of us in all of our needs. We thank you for hearing our prayers this week with respect to the trial. We do pray that a favorable outcome will have been achieved there. Do pray for this woman who took the courageous stand to, to live in a consistent way with her Christian testimony and ask you, Father, to honor that, to bless her in it. Father, help us to be courageous like her. Help us to know what the scriptures say and be able to defend them and to live consistently in terms of them. Tonight, we pray you'd give us insight into more precious truths that you have for us from the book of Hebrews. These truths would be beneficial to us, not only for instruction and reproof and correction, but also that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, where our study tonight will begin at verse 19. But by way of review, I will read from the first verse of chapter 10. Hebrews 10, beginning our reading at verse 1. We'll go through the 25th verse in the reading. Hear God's word. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Else would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you would not, but a body did you prepare for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I am come in the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. The saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you would not, neither had pleasure therein, the which are offered according to the law. Then has he said, Lo, I am come to do thy will. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second by which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest indeed stands day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after he has said, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart, and upon their mind also will I write them. Then he says, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, brothers, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and having our body washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that it waver not. For he is faithful that promised. 
and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. And thus far the reading of God's word. When we come to verse 18 of chapter 10, we finish the major doctrinal section and the central doctrinal section of the epistle itself. The book of Hebrews is, as I have demonstrated over the last few weeks, I hope, really dense, intense, full of uh, systematic theology, ethical, excuse me, doctrinal um, instruction. But it's interesting that in the book of Hebrews, even as in the book of Romans, that is so full of uh, doctrinal instruction as well, that we see very clearly that doctrine is never abstract, it's never irrelevant to living. The author does not have a section where he says, okay, here's the instruction as to what Christians believe. And then later he says, now let's talk about how Christians should live. These two just run together. In his own mind, doctrine naturally is translated into life. What Christians profess automatically leads to what Christians must practice. And it's a real easy transition. In fact, as I said, verse 18 ends the major doctrinal treatise of the book of Hebrews. And what we have at verse 19 is the word, therefore. Turn with me in the book of Romans. I'm going to show you a similar thing. In the book of Romans, as you know, Paul argues perhaps the closest thing to a systematic theology in the New Testament through the first 11 chapters of Romans. Let's go through the first 11 chapters of Romans, see if we can do this real quick. Mm-hmm. Chapter 1 deals with the need for righteousness and how the Gentiles don't live up to the righteousness of God. Chapter 2 shows that the Jews don't live up to the righteousness of God, and yet they had a greater advantage and that the law was given to them. Chapter 3 shows us the righteousness of God apart from keeping of the law, apart from legalism, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 shows the example of uh, Abraham and talks about the significance of circumcision, the sacraments, if you will, about the blessedness of justification. Chapter 5 talks about the first man and the last man, Adam and Christ, set in contrast to one another and um, what it is to have peace with God. Chapter 6 begins to talk about sanctification, how a sinful life is incompatible with the grace of God. Chapter 7, the inward conflict in man, uh, even the uh, believer who needs to be delivered not only from the guilt of sin, but obviously from the power of sin as well in chapter 8 gives the answer to that. Praise be to God, because there is no condemnation. We now walk by the Spirit. We have life in the Spirit and life in the flesh contrasted with one another. And, of course, the 8th chapter of Romans is perhaps the best known in all the Bible, talking about uh, uh, the work of the Spirit in our lives. And chapter 9, um, real heavy chapter dealing with predestination and so forth. And chapter 10 and 11 the future of the world and God's perspective and how the Jews are incorporated into that. And so Paul, if I've made my point, has gone through some real heavy, deep waters of theology. And having gone through all of that, notice how chapter 12 begins. And again, in English, you don't see this, but the first word is, therefore. 
You know, starting way back in chapter 1, Paul started to say something. And it's almost like he's been holding his breath, teaching all this theology. And then he says, now, what about that? Therefore, and you know the rule that I've taught you. Whenever you see therefore, you ask, what's it there for? Paul tells us that on the basis of this, we must present our bodies to God as living sacrifices. He gets to the, you know, there's this real powerful, practical application of this biblical doctrine that he's been giving us. Well, the author of Hebrews is just like Paul. There's not a chapter break there. But in uh, chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews, the author says, Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us a new and living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us, and then he's going to give a series of exhortations, let us draw near, verse 22 says, let us hold fast, 23 says, let us consider, 24 says. And so again, we notice that faith must be practiced as well as professed. Doctrine is never irrelevant to living. It's a lesson that... um, a lot of people in the Christian church today have not learned and do not appreciate at all. If you get into a doctrinal discussion with people, how often will they tell you, well, what difference does it make? You know, down deep we all have the same feelings, and the important thing is that we live a Christ-like life. How many times have I been told that? The important thing is we live like Jesus. I think it can be said in response to that, it's also important that we believe what Jesus tells us to believe. And that we can't live like Jesus unless we have the same convictions that Jesus did and which he has communicated in his word. Don't think that doctrine is irrelevant to life. In a biblical perspective, it is not. Um, We even have this difficulty, sadly, in our own presbytery. We have people who consider detailed theological exams uh, superfluous knowledge. You know, why do we have to make our candidates go through all that? The important thing is that they have ministerial skills and, you know, they love the Lord. Well, they must have skills and they must love the Lord. I wouldn't take that away for a moment, but they'd also better know the truth and be able to enunciate it clearly and that sort of thing. So the book of Hebrews and Romans as well, I think, would teach us not to draw that dichotomy. Doctrine on one hand, life, or living the Christian life on the other. The two are integrated. They go hand in hand. You can't live right if you don't believe right. You can't believe right if you're not living right. So what is verse 19? All all of that by way of introduction to the word therefore. That's why I wanted to emphasize that word. All of the doctrine of Hebrews is now going to be put into like a a power-punched practical application. author says, therefore... Brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Would you notice the spirit of this exhortation? The author of Hebrews does not speak like a harsh judge to these people. He says, brothers. He had every right to speak as a judge. He had every right to be judgmental. He had every right to speak with an authority that set him apart from them. But he speaks in family terms. He says, brothers. And when he gives his first exhortation, notice he says, let us draw near. He includes himself in the exhortation to these people. He has done this before. In chapter 3, verse 1, 
The author says, Wherefore, holy brothers, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle. In chapter 3, verse 12, Take heed, brothers, lest aptly there be any one with an evil heart of unbelief. In chapter 6, verse 9, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, even though we speak in this way. And so he does not lose sight of his oneness with them and his compassion for them, even though he's going to speak very firmly to them about how they must live their lives. The Apostle Paul had the same ability to be very forthright and not give way um, in that, to compa- I mean, not to give up compassion in the process of exhorting those that God had put under his charge. In 2 Corinthians 10.1, You see a nice example. It says, Now I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. I, who in your presence am lowly among you, but being absent, am of good courage toward you. Paul says, I know that I'm far away, and it may seem courageous to write these firm words, but I'm entreating you with the kindness of Christ. What does he exhort them? He says, Brothers, Because of everything I've taught you, something takes place, something happens on the basis of that high priestly work of Christ that we've been speaking of. And for how long has he been speaking of the high priestly work of Christ? Where did he begin this subject? Someone make me feel good. Go back to the beginning of this discussion. Where is it? What's that? No, that's too far back. Okay, at the end of 5, exactly. You notice that he mentions in verse 10 of chapter 5, named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that sets him going. Bingo. You know, he's going to start talking about the high priesthood of Christ. Of course, there is this exhortation in chapter 6 about their falling back and uh, the failure of his hearers, the threat of apostasy. But in chapter 7, he goes on with Melchizedek, who he is, chapter 8, 9, and 10, all have to do with the Levitical ordinances and the priestly work of Christ supplanting them and the sacrifice of Christ being better. So he's gone on for some time on this. He finally says, brothers, therefore, if you understand this, you have boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil that is his flesh. What follows from the doctrinal truth that we've learned about the high priestly work of Christ is that we are boldly to enter into the holy place. Now, does this mean that the hearers were supposed to go to Jerusalem and walk right into the holy of holies that was still standing? Is that the holy place the author is referring to? Willie, where do you think the holy place is? That's right, the very presence of God in heaven. He says, you have boldness to enter into the very presence of God in prayer. And who is it that we follow into the holy place? Why do we have boldness to enter? Because who went before us? Christ went before us as our mediator. Notice chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We've discussed this before, but just by way of review. Which we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and entering into that which is within the veil, where as a forerunner Jesus entered for us, becoming a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Jesus entered in within the veil, and we follow him. He's our forerunner. So Jesus comes right into the presence of God, and we just follow behind him. Do you think of that when you pray, that I'm just following Jesus right into the presence of God? You'd have a lot more boldness and confidence if you did. I'm afraid that too often our mentality is, here I come again to God, and why should he listen to me? And uh, Of course, some people don't even worry about the awesome presence of God, and they just think they have every right to talk to him no matter what. But those who are understanding of the fact that we need a mediator, we need to remember that every time we pray, it's because we have that boldness to go into the very presence of God that no Jew had. In the Old Covenant, they stood at a distance. They could not approach the temple, only so far. The priest had to do the work, and they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies at all. Not even all the priests could do that, only one, once a year. But we go into the Holy of Holies every day. And we have that boldness to do it because we follow Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 16 has already taught this. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I'm afraid in time of need is usually when we don't feel very bold, very courageous, very confident. We feel broken down and and unable to cope with things. But the author of of this book says, if you've understood the theology I've taught you, that would take care of that problem. You'd have boldness to follow Jesus right in within the veil, to go right into the presence of God. Paul says in Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access in confidence through our faith in him. In Christ, we have boldness and access to God with confidence because of our faith in him. And so it's a rather persistent biblical theme. We pray with boldness. The problem is many of us don't pray. Not only do we not pray with boldness, we just don't pray at all. That comes from a number of sources. I could probably take the remainder of our time just talking about prayerlessness and why we are prayerless as people. But if I could just touch the surface of some reasons, maybe touch your heart for a moment here. It's because we get careless with God. We tend to get presumptuous. Now, we wouldn't say it's presumption, but we get careless. We just think we can take things for granted with God, and so we don't live a prayerful life. And then we aren't prayerful people because we are so self-consumed in our own sins and guilt that we hold back and don't pray. We're uncomfortable praying because we have been really distant from God. Author of Hebrews says we should be full of prayer, and not just prayer, but confident prayer. The kind of prayer... Do you ever have this feeling, as I do? Sometimes you hear people pray, and there's just such a sense of holiness about their prayer and reverence for God and familiarity. It's as though they're used to talking to God. And it just encourages you to hear them pray, because you know what it is to be in the presence of someone who's on confident terms with God. Well, all of us can have that, because we follow Jesus into the Holy of Holies. So, brothers, having understood everything that I've taught you about the priestly work of Jesus, have boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What gives us the boldness to enter in, to follow with him? You notice we do not get boldness from our good works. We do not get boldness to pray. 
from having achieved something that God has to honor. Merit does not give us boldness in prayer. Legalism does not make you prayerful. Legalism makes you proud. Well-known story about that, right? Where Jesus says that a tax gatherer and a Pharisee both went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee wouldn't even stand next to the tax gatherer, this social outcast. He goes over in his own place and lifts his face to heaven, you know, and uh, says, you know, God, you should be so happy to have me, you know, be a follower of you, and I do all these wonderful things. Well, there's a spirit of prayer there, too, but it's not a prayer to God. It's really a prayer to yourself. I'm really kind of a neat guy. However, the Pharisee, the, uh, excuse me, the tax gatherer um, doesn't so much as even lift his eyes to heaven in humility. He says, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Prayer makes us humble, and yet we can have a humble boldness. Though we go in before God and say, I have no right to stand here, I stand here confident. Why? For anything I've done. Have you ever been tempted to say, God, I've read my Bible every day this week, and so I think you should hear my prayer? Have you ever been tempted to say, well, I'm in church now while I'm praying, so you should really listen to my prayer? Uh, I see your faces. I know these are the tricks Satan makes us fall for. We tend to think that our religiosity makes God hear. What does the verse say, though? I want someone to tell me. Where does the boldness come from? By means of what do we have this boldness? By the blood of Jesus, exactly. That's my only plea before God, the blood of Jesus. Not my merit, but the blood of Jesus. Blood points to the full humanity of Jesus, doesn't it? A a ghost doesn't have blood, flesh and blood, or bones for that matter. The fact that Jesus' blood was shed indicates that he was truly a man. There's a fascinating verse in Acts 20, verse 28, that in this regard, you may want to be apprised of. Paul um, uses an expression that I want you to remember, because when you talk to people who doubt the deity of Christ or the orthodox doctrine that he's God and man, this verse is very helpful. Take heed unto yourselves to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of the Lord. And then it says this church was purchased with his blood. Whose blood? The Lord's blood. Well, Lord is a reference to God. But blood is a reference to what? A human nature. This is one of the clearest verses in the New Testament pointing to the deity of Christ because obviously the one who bled is Jesus, and yet he is the Lord, according to this passage as well. And so... First thing about Hebrews, remember that blood points to the humanity of the God-man. Blood also points to the price of sin, Ephesians 1.7. The price of sin. What did it cost to save sinners? It cost blood, because the life is in the blood. Remember that lesson, blood theology, I called it? Ephesians 1.7, in whom we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption through his blood. Redemption means a paying back, a setting free. And the cost of that redemption, 
the cost of that liberation, his blood. So blood points to the full humanity of the God-man. Blood points to the price of sin. Blood also points to the measure of God's love. How much did God love us? Look at Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and loosed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom. How much did he love us? He loved us to the point of blood. He loved us to the point of blood shedding. To put it very simply, he was willing to die for us. He cared so much for us. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 points that out as well. Knowing that you were redeemed not with corruptible things, with silver or gold from your vain manner of life handed down from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, even the blood of Christ. How much was God willing to pay for your salvation? How much did God love you? Did he love you a million dollars worth? That doesn't capture it. A billion dollars worth? No, Peter says not with the price of silver and gold. Something far more precious. He loved you to the point of blood. To the point of setting you free on the basis of the blood of his son. Blood points to Christ's humanity, to the price of sin, It points to the measure of God's love, and for all these reasons it points as well to justification before God's bar of justice. The blood of Christ bespeaks our justification. Now that word justification, what does it mean? Well, we talked earlier this evening about a woman who's been hauled into court for something she did, and it is our prayer as Christians that she be justified by the courts. What is it to be justified in court? Doug? To be deemed innocent, to be declared righteous, to have a judicial sentence in your favor where the judge says you are on good standing with this court. Are we in good standing in the court of God? We shouldn't be. We're sinners and our sins separate us from God and his wrath and curses upon us. But we learn in Romans 3 verse 25 that the blood of Jesus has given us a right standing. We are righteous in the eyes of God, declared to be so from the judicial judgment, the Lord of the universe, the judge of all mankind. Romans 3, verse 25, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness because of the passing over of sins done aforetime. He sent him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness And then Romans 5, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. The blood of Jesus testifies to our right standing with God. That we go before the judge and we don't have to be fearful. We have a righteous standing. He has declared us innocent and free and acceptable to him. And then finally, the blood of Jesus points to our reconciliation with the judge. It's not just that we are innocent before him, but we've been drawn close to him and we are reconciled personally. God is no longer angry with us. He no longer sets us apart from him. Colossians 1 verse 20, 
and through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. The blood of Jesus' cross has made peace with God for us. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brothers, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, remember that blood that shows his humanity, reminds us of the price of sin, the measure of God's love, and that we are justified now, have a right standing, and are reconciled to God. That blood gives us boldness to enter into the holy place. Then verse 20. By the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way, through the veil that is his flesh. We enter into the holy place by the new and living way. The author of Hebrews tells us we don't go the old way into the holy place. We don't even go into the old temple anymore. We don't go into the old holy of holies. We go into the true holy place. We go before the true presence of God in heaven, and we come through a new and a living way. And who opened up this way for us? Who inaugurated this way for us? Jesus did. Beginning to see that imagery, it recurs in the book of Hebrews. Jesus went before God, and we follow him in. He opened the way for us by the way which he opened up or dedicated for us a new and a living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The author of Hebrews speaks of the new living way by which we approach God. Jesus is the way and he's life. He's the living way. And what does Jesus, where does Jesus take us on this way? Through the veil. In Mark 15, verse 8, if you want to look it up, I think you know the story. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We enter into the Holy of Holies through the way Jesus has inaugurated and opened up. The veil now is pulled aside, and so the author says, we go in through the veil, and then he has this expression that really stumps the commentators, that is, through his flesh. How is it the flesh of Jesus is referred to here? What is being referred to? By the way which he dedicated for us a new and living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. I'm going to give you a few interpretations for you to wrestle with yourselves. Perhaps the most common interpretation found in the patristic writers and the medieval commentators on this passage is this means that by means of the flesh that veiled his divinity, Jesus takes us before God through the new and living way, through the veil, that is his flesh. So we enter through Christ's flesh, but his flesh is like a veil because in his flesh we don't see his deity. The flesh or the incarnation masked from us the full glory of his divine nature. So again, this interpretation says that it's by means of the flesh of Jesus that veiled his divinity that we have access to God. Well, 
problem is that the incarnation was not meant to veil Jesus' divinity. What does John 1.14 say? Well, I guess we better look it up. Is anybody ready to quote it? John 1.14, well-known passage about the incarnation. The Word was made flesh, dwelt among us, made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld... His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John doesn't seem to think the incarnation veiled the glory of the only begotten Son. The incarnation is not often understood that way in the New Testament. And more importantly, the veil in Hebrews chapter 10 is quite clearly the veil of the temple, not just a veil that someone wears like a woman wears over her face to mask herself. And so it doesn't seem that the word veil is being seen, is being understood in its literary context here on this interpretation. Well, a second one, which is attractive to me, but grammatically unlikely for a reason I'll show you in a moment, says that what is explained by the flesh of Jesus is not the veil, but the way into God's presence. So look at the verse again. By the way which he dedicated for us, that is to say his flesh, a new and living way through the veil. That is, his flesh explains the way that we go in through the veil. The incarnation of Jesus is what has made it possible for him to die in our place and to take us into the presence of God. So the way is his flesh, not the veil being his flesh. But there is a grammatical problem with that. It is not impossible. It's highly unlikely. The grammatical problem is that this means the appositional expression, that is his flesh, is put at the end of the verse quite a distance from what it really is explaining. In terms of the word order, it would be very unlikely for the author to be speaking of the way, that is to say his flesh, and then have that much intervening material. It's not grammatically correct to do it that way. It's not impossible, but at least that would explain the passage. A third interpretation is the veil is the transition point between God and man. And so the flesh of Jesus is the transition point between God and man. Okay? After all, the veil isn't just a barrier to keep people away from the presence of God. It also is the presence of God, and on the very other side is the world of mankind, as it were. Well, the difficulty is that's an awfully allegorical interpretation. We don't have any hint in the text itself that uh, the word veil is being used that way. This is something imported from outside, and usually because of exegetical awkwardness, it's a... Uh, what we call interpretation by desperation. <laughs> it may be theologically correct, but it has very little to say for it literarily. And another interpretation is that in the way that the veil had to be torn for us to enter into God's presence, so the flesh of Jesus also had to be torn for us to enter into God's presence. And so veil and flesh do explain one another, both of them in need of destruction that we would have access to God. What is the proper interpretation? Which of those four would you prefer? I don't like any of them, to be honest with you. And I don't know. 
I, I, I do see advantages in one over the other and so forth, but I, the last one is perhaps the closest to fitting the literary imagery of the passage, the idea of a veil being torn in order to enter God's presence. But I'm simply not going to take a position tonight on this because I think it's incumbent upon ministers of the word to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, and where I'm unsure, I'm just going to leave it that way. I'd be glad to be have my effort improved upon. Does someone have another interpretation they'd like to try? Kent? Um, I think it's, it's sort of what you were saying in, the, in your second interpretation, but by a new living way which he has consecrated for us, and through the, ver- through the veil is a parenthetical expression, that is to say his flesh, meaning that the new and living way is what his flesh is, and, and through the veil is just a, a phrase explaining where you're going. You're jumping on... You're writing Christ through the veil. Right. Well, that is the second interpretation, in essence, that um, that I offered. The difficulty being that you are treating that through the veil as a parenthetical expression, and in Greek there were no parentheses. You see, if we did that in English, if we did that in English, we could do that. No, they did not use parentheses in Greek. And so... Um, Again, it's grammatically awkward to skip over what the previous um, and most likely antecedent would be for an appositional phrase to get to one before that. Not impossible, but grammatically not likely, although the interpretation makes a lot more sense than the other ones. Joe? What about the term flesh taken um, um, for the, the larger view of his incarnation in general, the entire act, all that followed upon it? Well, in what way does that explain the veil of the temple? The bar- How is it his flesh was the barrier keeping men out from the holy presence of God? Yeah, I think I'm throwing back to the new and living way in that kind of... Yeah, it seems like we know the sense of the author, even though we can't quite put the nuts and bolts together. The flesh of Jesus is the avenue by which we have access to God. And yet, again, grammatically, that doesn't seem to be exactly what the author is saying. Okay? I'll throw one out. Well, the veil at, at Golgotha was, was torn at the moment of his death, wasn't it? Yes. Is that, is that where he's re- the author is referring to? Well, that would support the fourth interpretation, that just as the veil was torn, his body was torn, his flesh was torn, that we might have access to God. Um, A new and living way through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That is to say, a reference to the, um, the to the death of his flesh. Yeah, that again in, imports an awful lot of material conceptually. Elliptical expressions are possible, of course, and that might be the way it's taken. Anyway, I, I'm sorry to... to end our Bible study on an anticlimactic note, but I'm just not going to come down hard on an interpretation that I'm not any more sure of than I am tonight. Marilyn, were you going to... No, I have two questions. Right. Right. The, that is his flesh. The, the, the that is the flesh. Yeah. Is that? I mean, it, it's, a, it's not a relative term, right? What, what is the that is? It actually is, uh, as, as I recall, um, hutu, um, and so the the um, 
the pointer is used, the demonstrative pronoun is used, that is pointing to something. That is his flesh. Being used very much like the English expression, that is, i.e., his flesh. Is there anything in the term? I'm sorry? Right, and as we've said already, I think all of us would like that interpretation. The new and living way is his flesh. The problem is we have this intervening expression, through the veil, that is his flesh. And the flesh seems to be explaining the veil rather than the way. Maybe we should just accept the awkwardness of the grammar and say the theological interpretation is uh, what gives strength to that option. Go ahead. I don't think so, because you have to understand that the word curtain or veil has been used already in a very definite way in this passage to talk about the curtain that keeps the holy place from the holy of holies. And because of that literary context, it would be unlikely that a veil on the face or a veil just to mask something is all the author has in mind here. Of course, that is the medieval and patristic preference to see the flesh of Jesus masking or veiling his, his deity. But that doesn't seem to be the way the author is using the word in this setting anyway. Pat. Yeah, this is what we've been saying now. I mean, this is the, the difficulty is only a grammatical one. That that expression, that is his flesh, would seem to point to the last noun being used here, and which is curtain rather than way. Yeah, which would be the flesh is alive, though. It's a new and living flesh. I agree. That's true, but again, the grammatical problem remains, unless David is going to uncork it for us here. David? So, Calvin, my question is, can you think of other instances in this book where the theological sense forces us to accept offered grammar, or even another If we were in John or Paul, we'd be on safer ground to do that, especially John. John sometimes uses very weak Greek grammar, although the sense is not obscured. Um, the two most highly structured and precise Greek treatises in the New Testament are Luke and Hebrews. And so this is probably the last epistle you would presume that a slight uh, uh, solecism would be found. Uh, not impossible. I'm not giving up on that because I still like that interpretation. But I, I'm always disinclined to accept interpretation where I have to make excuses for the grammatical mistake it represents. I don't like to get into theological disputes and have people point out that I'm making a mistake in grammar to interpret it that way. Well, anyway, we'll end on that note. and we come back next week, I want you especially to be prepared to discuss this question of forsaking of our assembling together. 
and why that is so important in this epistle, what constitutes such forsaking, and what is set over against it. And the theme of next week's lesson is going to be the divisiveness in the congregation. People who divide from the congregation is the opposite of acting in a loving and charitable way. That it is always the case, according to the author here, that if you are not provoking people to good works and to love, that your tendency is to forsake the assembling together for worship. And, uh, well, I'll comment on that next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Please turn the tape over at this time.